Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of distraction. With us today is Nir Eyal, author of the best-selling book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Awesome. And we talk a lot about the future on this podcast. And it occurred to me when prepping for this episode that in order for us to achieve anything that we really care about, whether that's fighting climate change or colonizing Mars or developing provably beneficial AI, it's crucial that we stay focused and not get distracted. So today, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what individuals can do to be indistractable, what organizations like companies and schools can do to be indistractable, and also what governments and nation states can do to help their citizens be indistractable. But before we get into the future and what should happen going forward, it might be helpful to provide a little bit of historic context so we can get a sense for where we are right now. So Nir, in your mind, how has the nature of distraction changed in the last 10 to 15 years with things like the smartphone, push notification, and an always-on work culture? Yeah, so distraction has been with us forever. Uh, It's not something that was invented with the internet or Facebook Mm -hmm. or our iPhones. It's Mm -hmm. been around for a very, very long time. Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. He talked about akrasia, the tendency that we have to do things against our better interest. And so it's a fascinating question in my mind. It certainly was a fascinating question of, you know, if we know what to do, why don't we do it? Uh, Especially in this age where there is no more information gap, we really don't have an excuse to say, oh, I wonder why it's hard to lose weight or I wonder why it's hard to uh, get ahead. I wonder why I can't spend quality time with my family. You know, we we know the basics of this stuff, all of us intuitively. If we spend a little time thinking about our, our problems, many of our problems, uh, we can get to the heart of and do something about. I mean, who who doesn't know that uh, chocolate cake is not as healthy as a healthful salad? Uh, who doesn't know that if you want to have better relationships, you have to be fully present with people? Who doesn't know that if you want to do better at your job, you have to do the work, especially the hard work that other people don't want to do? So there's so many things that we know we should do and yet we don't do. And and I'm patient zero here. I mean, I, this book was really written for me uh, more than anyone else because I wanted to solve this problem for myself. And so that's why I, I delved into this problem that that uh, Plato discussed of, you know, despite the fact that we know what to do, why do we do things against our better judgment? And, um, you know, people have been blaming one thing or another for a very long time. Uh, in this generation, we all blame our cell phones and Facebook and uh, uh, Instagram. Uh, and when I was a kid, we all blamed uh, Super Mario Brothers and Dungeons and Dragons. That was supposed to be melting people's brains. And before that, it was television. And before that, it was the radio, the phonograph, the written word even uh, was blamed for, you know, Aristotle said, or sorry, Socrates said, enfeebling men's minds, uh, the technology of writing. And uh, (laughs) in a way, he was right. It's not that we should, you know, dismiss these claims. Every new technological innovation comes with a cost. Uh, The question is, how do we adapt our behavior as well as our technology to make sure that we can get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us? So my mission here is to overturn a lot of this simplistic thinking that a lot of us believe, unfortunately, that technology is hijacking our brains, that it's addicting everyone, uh, that it's this sinister force. You know, that's that's just not true. It's not scientific, but it makes for great headlines. And ironically, many people in the media perpetuate these stupid headlines uh, that technology is addicting everyone and that it's, you know, hijacking our brains. And in fact, what I see is that it is making the problem worse. 
because it is leading to what we call learned helplessness, that mm. uh, we know that the number one determinant of whether an alcoholic will, uh, will, will recover after treatment is not their level of physical dependency. It's not what's happening in their body. It's what's happening in their brains. It's, in fact, their belief in their own power to change. And so uh, studies have found that when we believe that there's nothing we can do about this problem, we stop trying. And, of course, it becomes true. And so that's really what I'm trying to fight against is to not only answer this problem of you know, that, that, that Plato asked uh, 2,500 years ago of why do we do uh, things against our better interest, not only answer the deeper psychology of why that occurs. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's not about the latest technology. It's about something much deeper going on. And two, provide uh, tools that help us deal with distraction in this modern age, because even though distraction is an age old problem, uh, we, we have seen that the, the, the technology, because it is so pervasive as well as designed to be so persuasive, uh, mm. it is something that can be more difficult to, to, to deal with if we don't know how. And so that's really what Indistractable is all about, is the root cause of distraction as well as practical strategies to put distraction in its place and make sure that we can get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us. Wow. Yeah, those are all really good points. So. Today, what do you think are some of the major causes of distraction? You know, in your book, you talk a lot about push notifications, emails, and, you know, the, the corollary to that is how do we combat those sources of distraction? Yeah, so to understand this problem, we first have to start with what do we mean by distraction? Mm -hmm. um, so, so let's start with what that term means so that we can conceptualize it. And the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. If you look at the entomology of the words, traction and distraction both come from the same Latin root, trahare. Traho, trahare, trahawi. Exactly, there you go, Latin student there. Um, and so we also see that they end in the same six letter words, uh, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls us towards what we want to do things that we do with intent. And the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls us away from what we plan to do, things that we do not do with intent. And right. so this, this is important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. So you know, many of us suffer from this problem of thinking that, oh, you know, email and uh, Slack channels or talking to an office colleague, that's, that's a good thing to do because that's worky. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you know, that's pseudo work. Because oftentimes, if you haven't planned to do those things, let's say you sit down at your desk and you say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. Now I'm going to do that thing that I've been procrastinating on. I'm finally going to finish the thing that I need to do right after I check email. Mm -hmm. Well, then you have allowed something that can be productive, that can be traction, like checking email, to become a distraction because it's doing something you didn't plan to do. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first important point. Anything can become a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time, if it's not traction. The yeah, converse is, is that anything can become traction. So we need to dis disavow of this idea that some pastimes are somehow morally superior or inferior to other pastimes. And I hear this all the time. Oh, you playing video games, that's frivolity, right? You checking mm -hmm. Instagram, that's a waste of time. But me watching you know, the World Series, that's okay. Why? I can't, I can't understand what's the difference. There is no difference. In fact, you can, you can argue that there's a lot of benefit to people interacting socially versus watching the boob tube passively. <laughs> so we need to stop judging people for how they spend their time 
and realize that any way you spend your time, if that's how you decide to spend your time, it's according to your values and it's done with intent and you're doing it on your schedule, not on someone else's schedule, it's traction and we should enjoy it and stop this moral panic around how just because the technology is new, it should be scary and feared. So that's the first important distinction is traction versus distraction. Mm -hmm. Now, just to finish up the model, so there's four parts to this model. The things that lead us to traction and distraction are either external triggers or internal triggers. So mm -hmm. external triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, all of the things in our environment that prompt us to either traction or distraction. Uh, so these, of course, can be our devices, it can be uh, our computers, but of course it can also be other people. So we see that that's a very common source of distraction, particularly in the workplace, is a colleague stopping by your desk to say, hey, can I talk to you for a quick sec? Or did you hear that this latest bit of office gossip or whatever the case might be? That can be just as much of a pernicious distraction. And so we need to acknowledge that as well and find strategies to deal with it. All that being said, the number one cause of distraction, the most prevalent source of distraction, has nothing to do with the external triggers, but in fact have to do with what's called the internal triggers. Internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. And this is the most important takeaway from the entire book, is that most distraction starts from within. That in fact, if we're going to answer Plato's question of why do we do things against our better interests, we have to start with an, a, a more fundamental question, which is not only why do we do things against our better interests, but why do we do anything? What's the nature of human motivation? And most people will tell you it's some form of carrots and sticks, right? It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This is what Freud called the pleasure principle. But uh, as is common with a lot of things that Freud said, this is wrong. That in fact, neurologically speaking, we do not do things in the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. But in fact, the seat of all human motivation is one thing. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. Everything we do, even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations is about the desire to escape discomfort, even wanting, craving, desire, lusting. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically that is exactly what's going on in the brain. The brain has two distinct systems, the liking system and the wanting system. The liking system's job is to encode memories of things that felt good and the wanting system, the purpose of the wanting system is to make us feel bad so that we are driven to get that thing we want. That's how it works. And so what that means is fundamentally, if all human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. This is a really, really important point. I can't emphasize it enough because yeah. it doesn't matter what guru's techniques or life hacks or you know whatever uh, uh, you know technique du jour is in whatever self-help book that you might read. Fundamentally, if we don't address this fact, that we are using distractions, whether it's too much Facebook, uh, too much time in the office, too much drinking, too much TV, too much whatever, we are doing these things, if we're really honest with ourselves, to escape a sensation we don't want to feel. That is the hmm. ultimate truth that we have to realize because until we realize that, we can't really do anything about the problem. We keep putting Band-Aids on the problem as opposed to figuring out what is really going on inside of us that's leading us to try and escape these uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, that, that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is that there is only one task in life, and that's to decide what to do with the time we have. And that is really what it all you know, comes down to based on what you were saying. And it almost seems like by your definition, 
distraction is sort of a misaligned value system where what you really want to be doing is not what you in fact actually are doing. So I guess a, a good follow-up question would be, if someone is in this state where they're doing what they shouldn't be doing and they're finding it hard to overcome that, how can someone modify their own internal triggers so that they are more aligned with, with how they want to be spending their time? Yeah, so there's only two ways. We can either fix the source of the problem, meaning we figure out what's going on that's causing us this discomfort we're trying to escape. You know, with me, uh, in my case, I was checking my device when I was with my daughter, when I was with my friends, when I was with my wife, when I was at work. I was letting myself get distracted, not just by my device, by doing research instead of writing, by checking the news as opposed to being with loved ones, by doing whatever it was to procrastinate, to not do what I said I was going to do. And so fundamentally, I had to deal with the fact that there were some things going on in my life that I needed to fix, whether it's a difficult home environment, uh, what's going on in, at home, whether it's uh, a toxic workplace culture. There's a whole chapter in the, in the section in the book about uh, yeah, why distraction chapter. in the workplace is a, is, a, is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. And so we have to figure out is, you know, what is really causing the pain we're trying to escape. And if we can fix it, we certainly should. Now, some problems we can't fix. Okay, some emotions, some feelings uh, are just part of being a human being. And we can't necessarily fix every bad feeling. What we can do, we can't control how we feel, but we can control how we respond to our feelings. And so that's the other step. There are three big buckets, three big techniques of what we can do. We can reimagine the trigger, reimagine the task, or reimagine our temperament. And so when we use these three techniques, we can find healthier ways to deal with the discomfort that leads us towards distraction. Yeah, the, the big one that resonated with me is when you talk about identity and how the difference between someone saying, oh, I can't eat that chocolate or that bread or whatever it is, versus I don't eat that. You know, I'm, I'm not the type of person who eats that type of food. That can be really strong because you're leveraging your sense of identity rather than making it feel like you're just not able to do something like someone is not letting you uh, do it. So that that part really resonated with me. Yeah, yeah. So that has to do with making an identity pact. Uh, and it also has to do with reimagining our temperament. We know that there's a lot of bad science out there that unfortunately has become part of the popular lexicon. Uh, we know that there's uh, many people have this idea that uh, if you do, uh, if you have a hard day, if you spend a lot of willpower on a task, that your willpower will run out like you know gas in a gas tank. And this is called ego depletion. And for a while, this became a very popular idea. Uh, in fact, there were some studies that found that, that ego depletion was real, that, uh, that people who uh, you know, took a hard test were less likely. They didn't have the, the self-control. They were spent. They, they ran out of this ability to make good decisions. But then a few other researchers decided to explore this idea and to see if it would actually replicate in other studies. And what they found was that, in fact, ego depletion didn't really exist, that, that it wasn't true, except for, except for one group of people, people who believed that ego depletion existed. <laughs> <laughs> so think about that. Your perception of your capability to exert willpower was connected to your outcome, right? So your beliefs 
it directly affected what you would actually do. So in my case, I would come home from work and I would say, oh my goodness, I've had such a hard day. Uh, I deserve to relax. I deserve that Ben and Jerry's and to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. And so it became true. And many people tell themselves this. I certainly did. And so this is a really important uh, warning because that's exactly what we see happening today with this unscientific idea that technology is hijacking your brain. When you believe that to be true, you make it true. And so just as with ego depletion, your beliefs affect your behavior. And so that's why it's so important to reimagine our temperament. We also see this when people label themselves, like I did, as lazy or having a poor attention span or whatever it might be. Those labels are oftentimes self-sabotaging, and that's what reimagining our temperament is all about. So I would be curious to know some of the tactics you use personally to combat this sort of distraction. You know, yeah. in the book you talk about time boxing, and also you have some really interesting ways that you deal with email. So I'd be curious um, if you would, you know, share that with listeners. Sure. So we've got these four big strategies, and the, and the strategies are more important than the tactics. There's lots mm-hmm. and lots of tactics, a lot yeah. of, you know, stuff that you can do right now. But, but just to be clear, you know, tactics are what you do. Strategies are why you do them. Right. And so strategy is always more important than tactic because you can come up with your own tactics. And people have actually. They, after mm-hmm. reading the book based on the strategy, they've sent me, oh, you know, here's what I'm doing. And what about this tool and that tool? And that's great. But we don't want to be fixated on the tools because the tools okay. change. The strategies don't. So the four big strategies, you know, we're following. So we, we talked about those four parts of the indistractable mm-hmm. model. So basically work our way around those four steps and turn them into strategies. So Step number one is mastering your internal triggers, finding ways to turn those uncomfortable emotional states into traction rather than distraction. And I can tell you some practical tools for how to do that. The okay. next step is to make time for traction. So we talked about the opposite of distraction is traction. How do you make time for traction in your day? And there's, of course, strategies for, or tactics for how to do that. The mm-hmm. third step is to hack back the external triggers. So we clearly have all of these pings and dings and other people in our lives that can pull us towards traction or distraction. How do we make sure that we can put them in their place and and make sure that they serve us as opposed to us serving them? Mm -hmm. And then finally, we can use pacts to prevent distraction. And so there are tactics there as well. But now that we know those four big strategies, we can get into the weeds in terms of, okay, how do I apply this to our life? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talked about uh, how to, how to master the internal triggers a bit you know we can reimagine our temperament another big strategy is to reimagine the triggers so that when we feel one of these uncomfortable emotional states we have ways to cope with it without constantly giving into distraction so i i draw upon the techniques of acceptance and commitment therapy this is a you know decades old uh method for dealing with uncomfortable sensations realizing that you cannot affect what you feel what you can do is change how you respond to those feelings and so what we want to do is to give ourselves a toolkit that allows us to quickly draw from a technique when we feel these uncomfortable states, whether it's, you know, when I feel lonely, I check Facebook. When I'm uh, uncertain, I Google. When I'm bored, I check Reddit or stock prices or ESPN or Pinterest. Mm-hmm. What we want to do is to break that association with the internal trigger and the immediate behavior that's not serving us with instead a more healthy behavior. Realizing that, look, one of my big complaints with the self-help industry these days is that we're fed this lie around happiness. 
a lot of people tell us that if you're not happy, then something's wrong with you. That if you're not, not satisfied all the time, if life isn't hunky-dory constantly, then there's something wrong. And that's not true. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth, in fact, that you know, we are evolved to be perpetually perturbed. So what we have to do, and, and of course that's evolutionarily beneficial, that, that helped us as a species, right? Think about it. If there was ever a group of homo sapiens that was happy all the time, that was satisfied with life, that was you know, always, always happy, well, those mm. people were probably killed and eaten by our ancestors. Right. Right. Yeah. They wouldn't have survived. Yeah. So our species, the fact that we are constantly striving for more mm-hmm. is what made our species so great. Right. That's what keep, kept us hunting and searching and inventing and creating. That's mm. what helps our species progress. OK, so we can't meditate every problem away. There's nothing wrong with meditation. If it works for you, wonderful. But many things we need to get off our butts and do something about. And so we need to harness that capability as opposed to just saying, well, you know, don't feel that or learn techniques to 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 subside those emotions. No, we, we can harness that fire for good. And so that's really what these techniques are about. So one technique that we can use uh, just to give you, you know, one very practical insight is called the 10 minute rule where we tell ourselves that when we are about to give in to a distraction, if we can catch ourselves and say, oh, there's that feeling of boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety, whatever it might be. If we can catch ourselves before we give in to that temptation and say, all right, I will give in to that temptation, but in 10 minutes. And I use this when it's uh, you know, to help me not eat that piece of chocolate cake that I'm trying to resist, or whether it's when I need to do work and I'm tempted to go check email for just a quick sec. You can use this 10 minute rule to say, all right, I can give in in just 10 minutes. And for those 10 minutes, your job is to do what's called surfing the urge is to just sit with that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt and just experience what that feeling is. Now, you can, uh, you can give in to that temptation after just 10 minutes of surfing that urge, but for those 10 minutes, you only have two choices. You can either feel that sensation, just contemplate it without, without contempt, with curiosity, or get back to the task at hand. And what we find is that nine times out of 10, you will get back to the task at hand before the 10 minutes are up. And this technique has been shown to be much more effective than, than strict abstinence because we know that strict abstinence can backfire, right? If I told you right now, whatever you do, don't think about a white bear. What are you thinking about? A white bear. <laughs> you're all thinking about, yeah, exactly. You're thinking about a white bear. So this is why abstinence oftentimes doesn't work because when you tell yourself, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You think about it more, you ruminate on it. And then, of course, the only solution to that problem, the pain caused by telling yourself not to do something, is to give into it. And once you give into it, now you've reinforced a neural pathway that the only solution to the discomfort of not doing something is to do it. This is, in fact, what makes cigarettes so addictive. It's because when people tell themselves, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, ah, fine, I'll smoke. There's nothing inherently pleasurable about nicotine of course nicotine does have addictive effects but this is why because the sensation becomes associated with what relieved the tension of not doing something does that make sense totally and so this is why we don't want to use strict abstinence uh instead what we want to do is to have these techniques that come from acceptance and commitment therapy that help us surf the urge until it subsides Hmm. yeah it does i do take your point that internal triggers are far more important 
um, and they've been prevalent throughout the course of history. It does seem like what's different today is that your phone is almost an extension of your brain. It's like a digital self that sort of allows you to have more power and do more than you would be able to do without that. And I know Elon Musk talks about this digital tertiary layer, you know, even even if we eventually have something like like Neuralink. And so I'm, I'm curious about the distinction between what's a good use of that digital tertiary self versus what's a bad use of it. And it seems like part of the bad, uh, you know, what you need to really take control of are the external triggers, you know, especially things like misinformation, um, you know, that are coming in. And I don't know if you saw the news yesterday, Nir, but, you know, Jack Dorsey announced that Twitter will no longer allow any political ads on Twitter. And it seems like he's sort of safeguarding that as a safe place for our digital selves to all interact. Whereas you could imagine someone who is getting these very targeted ads that really speak to your, you know, the innermost part of your brain, which is, you know, fight or flight and all of those like more most primal urges. So I'm curious how how you see, you know, do you see external triggers as being one of the most perhaps nefarious types of uh distraction that we have to deal with in the digital age, especially misinformation? Well, I, th I think we're mixing a little bit of, of, of the terminology here. So an external trigger is is the uh, manifestation of whatever it is that drives you towards traction or distraction. So an external trigger could be a notification on your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a, a, a colleague stopping by your desk. It could be a, a, a email. It could be anything that is in your environment that prompts you to take an action. It doesn't necessarily have to be have anything to do with misinformation or, uh, right. or, or fake news. That that might be what the con the content that. It comes yeah, that's more what I'm saying. Like someone basically yeah. putting information into your feed, your conscious awareness that unless they had paid for that to be put specifically in you with targeting, you know, you it would not even be on your radar, which is, you know, they, I mean, there's always been propaganda, but it seems like now just with the the level of targeting and the level of persuasion, that that is something that people really need to be aware of. Sure, I, I definitely think that there's a, a, role, a role for media literacy, um, but I also think that um, this public awareness of this problem is a good thing, is a very good thing, um, that we see that the more technologically savvy people are, uh, they, and in fact, the younger they are, the less persuadable they are by these techniques. That the people who are most persuaded by these these things are the ones who are least familiar with the technologies, and that's a very good sign. That means we're moving in the right direction, right? When we think about, you know, what happened on on Facebook during the last election, uh, it it it, uh, it wasn't necessarily the young people that 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 were persuaded because they know how to balance what they see mm. uh, online with other uh, sources of information. In fact, we hear it in lexicon already, right? When when someone hears a fact. Uh, or a statement that they not, are not sure about the credibility. What do you say? Hey, would you, like, what'd you get that on Twitter? Where'd you hear that? Right. And that's a good thing, right? So what's mm -hmm. happened? We've been here before. Remember, the National Enquirer used to be a reputable paper. <laughs> and what happened? Yeah. You know, you can find it at every supermarket in America. You can find the National Enquirer. This trash that, that is full of what people know is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. news right it's it's completely you know, it's hillary yeah. clinton has an affair with an alien type stuff it's totally <laughs> stupid but everybody yeah. knows that right right well and a lot of Maybe it's there sort are of some people who think it's the real deal 
Yeah. A lot of it sort of plays and, on and so, that, the learned helplessness that you talked about too. It's like, oh, the reason your life isn't great is because there are all these people that are oppressing you or there are all these bad tech companies and, you know, the technology is harming you. And people like that because it, it makes them not have to, you know, put the onus on themselves, which you make a really good point of that in your book. Yeah. So I, I think what's happening is that we are learning what's credible and what's, what's not credible. Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, we, just as the National Enquirer became... Um, you know, a, a, a trashy <laughs> newspaper that nobody who really wants real information buys, you look for other sources, I think we're seeing something very similar happen to social media. That, look, if, if Facebook and Twitter are your primary sources of news, um, you know, that might not be a great idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. That you may want other sources. And I think the average person knows that. My, I think my struggle is why so much attention to these mediums that I think actually can do something about the problem. I think they are. I think they're, you know, there's been so much public attention. We see them changing their algorithms. They, they see, we see them doing different things like, uh, you know, changing what people will see so that they see more balanced content or putting disclaimers on content when it might be, uh, a, 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 you know, various degrees of, of, of factfulness. Hmm. Meanwhile, there's no attention paid to the propaganda that's spread on other mediums like Fox News. When was the last time you heard anybody say, hey, you know what? Millions of people are watching Fox News. Is, any, is this stuff true? Right. <laughs> and yet we're, 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 we're only targeting the new medium. Why? Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's like that Douglas Adams quote. I'm going to butcher it here. But basically he said that anything that's invented uh, before you are 15 is, the, uh, is, is, has always been here and is natural. Anything that's hmm. invented between the age of 15 and 35 is exciting and you can get a job in it. Anything that's invented after you're age 35 is unnatural and against, <laughs> the, natural, and, and against the way things should be. And that's exactly what's going on. I mean I think that, that uh, you know, cable news uh, and, and Fox News in particular have, has had a much more negative effect on spreading disinformation mm -hmm. than anything you can find on, on Facebook. Uh, you know, so I, that's what I worry about more, uh, much more. But all that being hmm. said – I think the idea I'm trying to propagate is not that that you know Facebook good or this is bad or this is you know I'm not I'm not making a judgment call on what's good and what's bad. The fact is technology is both, right? Mm -hmm. Technology can be used for various purposes. And so what I want to help people do is to help people live according to their values. You know, if there's one thing I, I wish all people would do is maybe we all should stop watching so much news. Because we have to yeah. ask ourselves where is it really serving us? You know, one of the clients I regret helping is the New York Times. I helped the New York Times hook people onto their app. And mm -hmm. and now I kind of look back and I'm like, wow, you know, maybe we don't need so much news. Is this really aligned with our values? Is it really helping us to constantly know every, you know, 30 minutes about the latest terrible thing that's happening in the world? Is that news right. curated to help us improve our lives or is it curated in the New York Times and Fox News and CNN to get us to do one thing, which is to watch more news? So mm -hmm. let's remember that all media is in the same business. They monetize your eyeballs, whether it's the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, Facebook, Twitter. They all mm -hmm. sell your attention. And so what I want us to do is just take a step back and say, wait a minute, how much of this do I really need? So one of the techniques I recommend is a monthly check-in, right? We don't need day-to-day -day news. It doesn't really affect most people's lives, the terrible thing that's happening 
you know, in the Middle East today or in the impeachment hearings today. That doesn't affect most people's lives. So one technique that I really like is once a month, go onto Wikipedia at the end of the month. This is something I do at the end of every month. I have a, a, a to-do, it's in my to-do list to do. It's, you know, auto reminds me to do this. And I check the news at the end of the month. Huh. And so then with the, with the retrospective of time, you have a little distance between the headline news, the very shallow information, and what really matters. And then you can schedule time to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to sp spend an hour of my day checking in on what happened this month so I'm up to date on current events. But that might be enough, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the idea here is to ask yourself, how do you spend your time in a way that's consistent with your values as opposed to letting other people manipulate your time for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as I was reading your book about push notifications and rearranging your apps, I did that in my phone, and I'm pretty amazed at the results. Like, I I no longer have any notifications except for, you know, perhaps like rideshare and like Postmates, like things where you actually really need a notification, and mm -hmm. I've totally eliminated any app I wasn't using, and and even just that, it really allows you to decide how you want to spend your time rather than getting sucked in when you see a, an enticing notification. Absolutely. So, so this is this falls under that third step of hacking back external triggers. And, and this is really basic stuff, right? I wrote it in the book because, uh, to my amazement, there was a study that found that two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Two-thirds mm. of people never change it. I mean, can we really say the technology is so sinister, so addictive, so manipulative? If we haven't even taken 10 yeah, minutes right. to those turn off those notifications, exist. why do we need alerts from CNN every time there's a breaking news story? Why do we need Facebook to interrupt us when we're having dinner with our real friends? We don't need that stuff. We can mm -hmm. use it later. So the idea here is there's nothing wrong with these tools, but schedule time for it. So I love, mm -hmm. love Facebook. I love Instagram. I love Twitter. I love YouTube. But I have time in my day to go on those sites and interact with, with the people I care about. I don't need to use it. Every time I feel bored or lonely or uncertain, when I feel the internal trigger, I have time in my day. So why is that so important? Because I turned something that was a distraction into an act of traction by putting time on my calendar to do those things and then hacking back the external triggers that don't serve me. So I don't think people should go on these digital detoxes or these 30-day plans. That's, that stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work for the same reason a fad diet doesn't work. So I used to be mm -hmm. clinically obese. And I would go on these fad diets and I say, no fast food for 30 days. And then <laughs> what happened on day 31? You know, I'd give me that, that the, the three orders of fries and a big shake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because, yeah. because I deprived myself as opposed to learning why I was using these tools and finding a way to, to use them in a healthier fashion. Right. Yeah. Systems are much better than goals. And that's something Scott Adams Absolutely. talks about Amen. that really resonates. I'm also curious about parenting you talk about parenting a lot in your book and it does seem like when you're dealing with this small human that hasn't really seen the world and maybe hasn't gotten full control over their attention it can seem like perhaps a dangerous thing to give them an ipad too early or to let them you know watch tv from a really early age but you also really make the point that giving kids autonomy is so important so that they don't have learned helplessness and they actually learn how to manage their attention properly. So I'm curious, how do you balance those two things 
Is there a certain age that you feel like you just really wouldn't want them any sort of access to an iPad or TV before that age? And at what age would you start giving them some autonomy to make those decisions for themselves? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So I, th I think there clearly is a, a various age limits. So the, you know, the low hanging fruit is to make sure that content is age appropriate. And this mm -hmm. is with all media. I don't know why there should be a special category and a special question around tech. I mean, look, as, as a parent, uh, I'm not going to let my daughter uh, watch just anything on TV. There's lots of stuff on TV I don't want much. She's not ready for. If she walked into the library, for God's sakes, right? I'm not going to let her just read any book, right? There's right. some books that she's not ready for. Does that mean that books are evil? No, it, mean, it doesn't mean, mm -hmm. mean that they're special. It just means that any form of content, any form of media needs to be moderated by a parent to make sure that it's that that, that content is age appropriate, right? Why why do we think that the iPad is an i nanny? That's ridiculous. We we need to make sure that the content is age appropriate. So the APA says that children under two don't need screens at all. I think that's a good guideline. And here's something that really frustrates me. You know, the companies themselves, social media companies, all tell you that the minimum age to use their product is 13. Why, for God's sakes, are we giving kids a product? that the manufacturer says do not let them use before a certain age, right? I talk to parents who say, oh, my kid is is on Instagram too much. How old are they, nine? Why is a nine-year-old using Instagram? The company says don't let them use until they're 13. So that's basic stuff, that's common sense. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about, I think, what's a thornier issue, which is why some kids are overusing technology. So all, all the studies that have been done to date, not a one shows any deleterious effects to, with two hours or less of extracurricular age-appropriate screen time, not mm -hmm. one study. Where we find negative effects, and they're small, but they're there, with really excessive use, five, six hours a day. That's where you start seeing a correlation with negative mm -hmm. effects. Now, they're very weak, uh, so they're, they're much less of an effect than skipping a class, being bullied, missing a good night's sleep. Those have much mm -hmm. more powerful effects, but you know, the studies are showing that there are very small effects to excessive use. We're talking five, six hours a day. Now, the question is, well, why do some kids use technology five, six hours a day, <laughs> right? And this is yeah. extracurricular screen time. This isn't, this isn't, you know, using a computer in school. This is after school time. So the first question is, you know, look, five, six hours of, of anything is perhaps indicative of a problem. And what we don't right. know is whether, you know, co you know, correlation does not prove causation, we don't know if people who are suffering from something that would necessitate them to escape discomfort, we talked about those internal triggers. The mm -hmm. question, of course, is do people who are already suffering in some way gravitate to use social media uh, or is social media causing this decline in, in psychological well-being? And, and I think it's the former, that what's happening is that many children today in this country, and I'm talking about mostly teens here, not, not young children, right. suffer from a lack of psychological nu so psychological nutrients, I, that's the term I came up with to describe mm -hmm. uh, the most well-accepted, most well-studied theory of human motivation and flourishing, which is called self-determination theory. And this comes from the work of, of Desi and Ryan. Uh, this is you know 50-year-old research. Every psychologist knows self-determination theory. It's, it's very well understood. And basically, Desi and Ryan propose that every human being needs three things to flourish psychologically. We need competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And these three things, I think, the average teenager is severely deficient in. Number one, competency. You know, one thing that has become more and more 
pervasive uh, is the rise of standardized testing. Around 2008, the same time the iPhone came out, this country has, has moved towards testing kids to death. That we, you know, starting in kindergarten, many kids have standardized tests sometimes two, three times a year. And so what we have is a generation of kids who are being taught towards the test by teachers whose bonuses depend on it. And they're constantly told, these children, that they are not competent. And so what do they do if they don't feel competent in the real world? They go online to feel competent. This is called the needs displacement hypothesis. If you don't feel competent offline, you look for it online. So they play Minecraft. They play Fortnite where they feel competent, right? The tech companies are more than happy to give them that feeling. And then autonomy, the second psychological nutrient. So this is the most hyper-regulated generation in history that the work of Peter Gray found that the average American child today has 10 times as many rules imposed on them as an average adult, twice as many as a convicted felon. There are only two (laughs) places in society where we can tell people where to go, what to think, what to eat, how to dress, who to be friends with, and that's school and prison. So is it any (laughs) wonder that when kids come home, they want freedom. They want autonomy, right? right? They're desperate for it. And where do they find it? Online. They feel like gods when they're online because they can control their universe. They have this sense of autonomy. And then finally, relatedness. So we are at a 50-year low for times, and that's when these studies started, so an all-time low in terms of when we've been recording this, of the number of hours that kids spend in free play. Free play is when kids can can interact with each other without the, the, the watchful gaze of coaches, teachers, and parents, right? When kids can just be kids and play. Mm-hmm. Now, what's happened is that kids are either scared to death. I'm sorry, parents are scared to death by the media because we've been told, you know, stranger danger and, you know, your kids might get abducted. We're so terrified by that so that we keep our kids indoors. Or if you have means, you're hyper-scheduling your kid between the test prep and the Kumon and the swimming lessons and the Mandarin, the kids have no time to play. And this is why we have such a a psychologically fragile generation. It's because we haven't given them enough of the most important thing that we can for their psychological nourishment, which is time to play. And so that, where do they go when they don't have enough relatedness? They go to Snapchat, they go to Instagram, they go to TikTok. That's where they feel connection and relatedness with their friends. So that's the root cause of the problem. Yeah, I I do want to go a bit deeper on the competence piece because to me it seems like the autonomy and relatedness could be solved, uh, you know, pretty readily. But with competence, it does seem like, you know, standardized testing is a big part of it, but also automation is, you know, something we talk about a lot on this podcast. And people like Andrew Yang and others have talked about how there are going to be fewer and fewer jobs that people will be able to do so that they're meaningfully contributing to society and to the economy. So I'm curious, you know, when you think about your kids and your kids growing up and what the what the uh, you know working world will be like then, and then you think about just you know uh, truck drivers getting displaced by self-driving cars and retail workers getting displaced by Amazon Go, uh, you know, stores. Do you see competence as being a a real issue with people's sense of fulfillment and value going forward as you know fewer and fewer people are able to contribute meaningfully to the economy or do you not think that's uh, so big of an issue no I, I think it's a I think it's a huge issue uh, I think the most important skill we need to teach our kids 
is not the rote memorization of facts, which is exactly what we do unbelievably. It's 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 stunning right. we still do this, right? We we make kids, you know, shove a bunch of facts in their brains and then barf them out on a on a test and somehow that's how you are rated as competent according to the school system. And then of course you forget everything you learned uh, in a few months, if certainly in a few years. I couldn't tell you a thing. I learned in physics or calculus, even though I spent so many hours learning those things back in, in, in high school. So, you know, that's the way our school system is structured, right? Cram it into their brains, get them to barf it out on a test, and yay, now you get a, an A. Congratulations. And that that's, of course, ridiculous. <laughs> that's right. that's a very, uh, you know, antiquated way to, to measure competency. What we should be doing instead is to have a kind of a measure of how we teach people to be autodidacts. So the skill of the future that we need to teach our kids is the skill of learning how to learn. Because one thing we know about the future is that it will require us to maybe have three or four careers in our lifetime instead of you know just banking on, oh, we can work as a truck driver for the rest of our life. Uh, we need to be prepared to teach people how to adapt their skills based on what uh, is, is needed in the marketplace. And that doesn't come from rote memorization. That comes from mental flexibility. That comes from the ability to, one, enjoy the process, which unfortunately the school system today squashes out of students, right? They, the school system today teaches people how to hate learning, not how to relish it, which is, which is so counterproductive. Yeah. Uh, and then we also need to teach people how to use their, their mental faculties to focus in such a way that they can take in these new skills, this new information in a way and, and then apply it and synthesize it. And that's why becoming indistractable is so important because, of course, if we, if we don't have the power to do what we say we're going to do, if we allow ourselves to constantly be distracted by this thing or the other thing, we, we, can't, uh, we can't spend that time acquiring these new skills. Right. Yeah, that's so important for, for any issue that we want to address. And I'm just curious, maybe one more question and then we'll get into our future scenarios. Where do you stand on the issue of universal basic income? Are you are you in that that boat, or do you have a another solution to the potential, you know, this issue of joblessness in the future? Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think it's a bit simplistic. Uh, I think it's a bit naive. I think it's it's a nice idea. I think also today it's a solution that's looking for a problem. I. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a nice solution to have on our shelves. I think I think we should do more studies to see what happens. But uh, look, the fact is, you know, we have what is it, three and a half percent unemployment. I mean, that that we we need more people, not more jobs right now. With three and a half percent unemployment, that is below full employment, and so we don't have this problem. Right? Yeah. The, the statistics are telling us we need more people. Right. Yeah, I've heard <laughs> someone say like unfilled. Andrew Yang is the perfect candidate, just not for this election. Like maybe next right. election will be the right timing. Right. Right. And I, I. So I think it's it's a it's a we should study it. We should certainly study it. But we don't see this you know mass automation putting people out of work. It's not happening right now. And so I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves um, with with such a solution. But it's an interesting proposition to study. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, let's get into the future scenarios. So let's start with the worst case scenario. Nir, what in your mind is the worst case scenario for the future of distraction? Worst case scenario. So the worst case outcome, I think, is that we uh, we give up. <laughs> that that uh, mm -hmm. we we 
begin to, um, uh, you know, bifurcate into the haves and haves nots when it comes to distractibility, when it comes to people who believe, uh, well, what are you going to do? Uh, I can't do anything about this. The, t- the, 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 these temptations are too powerful. I'm overweight because, you know, the baker makes such delicious food. Uh, I, I consume too much drink because alcohol has the best of me. I am on technology too much and I watch too much TV because everything is so interesting and it's designed to hack my brain. So what are you going to do? That's the worst case scenario. Mm. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Matamore? Yeah, I would say that's the, uh, similar for my worst case. Although I think the manifestation that would be the most nefarious is the misinformation piece. It's like, it's one thing if you're just distracted by entertainment that's still within the realm of the real world and you still get some enjoyment out of it. But it's quite another thing if you're distracted by facts that aren't even true, right? Like if you're so caught up with this version of reality that's not in fact what's going on, that to me seems like the worst flavor of distraction. But I think how we would get there is similar to what Nir said, where people just sort of lose their sense of them having control and they just get allow themselves to get sucked into, you know, whatever rabbit hole either the media throws at them or push notifications or or anything else. Um, so that would be my, my worst case scenario. But I'm interested to hear yours, Justin. Yeah, so I like how this book, how indistractable, it gives us agency. And I think in the worst case, we have no agency. So let's say there's an authoritarian government that essentially can control everything. It controls everything we see. If we have, you know, some sort of, you know, news outlets or propaganda that are constantly being fed to us, then we're always distracted and there's not really much we can do about it. Like in the worst case scenario, this, you know, we can't even use the tactics and the strategies in this book to, you know, gain back our attention. Um, so that's, yeah, that's pretty much my worst case scenario. All right, well, I, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic than, than you guys are because um, <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think that misinformation or fake news is, is a new problem. Mm-hmm. People have believed all kinds of stupid shit for a really long time. Yeah. Although, I mean, although I will you know, say though that let, let's, there haven't been forums for people to, you know, like 8chan, for instance, where there has never before been a way to connect all the crazy, you know, incel white supremacists together because they were so dispersed throughout society. So it, it does seem like there are certain ways that that people are able to get together like they weren't in the past. But I, I mean, I, I agree that we've this has always been an issue. There's always been propaganda. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the ability to find disparate, um, you know, people who are spread by geography with similar ideas, that that is both the blessing and the curse, right? I don't think you could have had mm-hmm. Me Too or Black Lives Matter without the internet doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also don't think that you could have, you know, incel and, and, and white supremacist groups connecting in this way either. That being said, there's a lot of research that actually shows that this this was pent up demand that that the white supremacists connecting, you know, that's been happening for a very very long time. I and mean, we we talk about mm-hmm. Charlottesville as if it was something new. You know, I remember as a kid in Orlando, Florida, I remember counter protesting the KKK rally who had a rally in front of my JCC. This is not new, right? This has wow. been happening, and there were many many people here. What we don't realize too, is that you know, what these these technologies also let us do is to have greater accountability. So 
when I was counter-protesting the KKK in front of my JCC, there were, there were hundreds of these Klansmen, right? And there was no way to know who these people were uh, because mm-hmm. there, you know, you couldn't publicly shame them with your, with the cell phones didn't exist, social media didn't exist. There was no way for it to have any repercussions about these people's professional lives. Well, today, yeah. you know, somebody goes to one of these rallies, and you, we can take their picture and see where they work, and you know, there's there's some natural repercussions that come from from having these type of antisocial behaviors, sometimes to an mm. extreme. But I think that what's changed is that the mass movements, um, you know, we we don't have this type of mass fake news, mass manipulation, you know, and, and, and I, this is going to ruffle some feathers, but let's, let's face it, organized religion. All right. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm not, not saying your religion, whatever your religion is, that's the true religion. Let's talk about all the other religions. Okay. Right. <laughs> so all the other religions, you know, there's this saying that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week because the black people go to the, the black people churches and the, the Muslims mm-hmm. go to the mosques and the Jews go to their congregations and everybody is told information from their religious people, you know, and, and this tends to happen on racial and socioeconomic lines, and they're fed whatever truths, half truths, misinformation, disinformation. Who knows? This for centuries has been the way to convince entire populations of things that aren't real and are, are, aren't true. Sometimes for political ends as well. And again, I'm not talking about your church or your synagogue or your mosque. I'm talking about everybody else's. Uh, so, so it's it's changing. It's evolving. I don't. It's, I think it's too early to say uh, good or bad. I think humans have a pretty good information immune system uh, that over time, I think the ability to 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 have open forums that has the ability of, of freedom of speech, uh, as long as it's not clamped down by, uh, you know, a, an information regime like what we see today in China with the Great Firewall, uh, mm. that that's much more scary. I think that probably is the worst case scenario that we have too much control on our media, whether it comes from a big company or a big government is, is an open question. Uh, mm. But I think that 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 uh, that's more likely of a of a worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, maybe we move it around to the best case scenario. Best case scenario. So do you want to start, Justin, or Nir, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I'll All go right. ahead. So in my best case scenario, I was thinking about how when humans are trying to make some sort of change in their lives, it's always better if the if you have a system around you that makes it easier and yes we can use tactics individually and strategies individually to help ourselves um stay you know we have a you know keep attention but i also think in the best case we have governments and companies that are totally uh working towards aligning their incentives with individual incentives so we can move to a point where People are working on the things they want to work on. We have the freedom. We have the autonomy. And it's easy. It's easy based on the uh, company structure, for example, to get work done because we're not constantly being bombarded with, you know, people tapping our shoulders and, you know, everything else. And maybe this looks more like a lot of remote work and more freelancing work. And people, you know, the whole economy changes so people can do that kind of stuff and be more productive that way. Um, so that's that's sort of my uh, best case scenario is just making sure that companies, governments, and individuals have completely aligned incentives um, in terms of you know keeping keeping attention and keeping productivity high. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, my best case scenario is building on the current trends that I think are really promising. Like, I mean, even Apple, for instance, coming out with their new do not disturb feature for calls and, you know, notifying you every three days when an app is tracking your location. And there are some really positive trends with technology, whereas most of the time, you know, the negative trends are what gets all the headlines. But I could see a best case scenario where technology really does become used as this way for people to accomplish what they really want to accomplish uh, to a far greater degree. And I agree with uh, Nir's optimism that it does feel like with all this interconnectedness and social media, it feels like where we just have greater openness and transparency for you know the issues that are going on. And I feel like we're in this difficult stage of transition where we're learning how to fight misinformation and we're learning how to you know still keep true to our values and, and spend the time in the way that we want. So I... Mm-hmm. I could see that as being a, a great outcome if we are, you know, finally able to to overcome those difficulties. And mm-hmm. and I, I think also just if we can really align how we compensate people with what is really valuable, even if it's not perhaps something that the market already values to that degree. And it may be too early to implement something like UBI, but I do really agree with Andrew Yang's argument that, you know, people who are caring for a disabled child at home or people who are caring for their elderly parents, like there are all these valuable things in society that that aren't being valued as such. And so if we can really align what we truly find valuable on a human level with what society finds valuable, I think that's sort of the perfect alignment. And that way you wouldn't have this you know, b- ballooning of bullshit jobs. You know, there's that book, Bullshit Jobs, which talks about there are all of these lawyers and accountants and people that spend a lot of their day just sort of twiddling their thumbs and collecting a high paycheck because society really values that role, even if it's not perhaps what we value most on a human to human level. So that would be my best case. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Nir. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think you've raised some, some great points. Um, I, I think my best case is, uh, you know, to cite what, what Paul Virilio said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. And so what I think is, is uh, uh, likely to happen, and I think is, is also the best case scenario, is that we, we find ways to improve uh, the, the detrimental aspects of one technology by creating more technology. Uh, and I think as long as we allow that process to happen, as long as we allow technological innovation uh, and we resist, I think what's happening these days is unfortunately we've moved from skepticism, which is a healthy trait, to now cynicism. Now we hear many people, unfortunately, Andrew Yang uh, got, got mixed up with, with uh, Tristan Harris, who I think has is, is become a, a tech cynic uh, yeah. and now doesn't believe anything these companies can do is, is right. And I think what we're seeing is, 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 is that is not true. That uh, you know exactly what you mentioned earlier, with um, you know uh, 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 Apple building in screen time, Google building in well-being, uh, and now you know they just a couple days ago released this experiments uh, interface where anyone can come up with ideas for how to people how to help people use their technology in a more productive, less distracting way. Uh, that's wonderful. I mean, these companies are doing things. I think about how strange this is, how ironic that companies that build these products are giving you tools to use their products less. Well, why is that happening? Is that because of political pressure? 
Absolutely not. Is it because they are altruistic? Absolutely not. It's happening because of a market imperative. It happens mm. because of the same exact reason that seatbelts were first put into cars. Seatbelts were first put into cars 17 years before any law mandated it. Why did car manufacturers do that? Because safer cars sell better. And so right. the car manufacturers knew that by putting seatbelts in cars, they could sell more cars. <laughs> yeah. The government didn't make them do that. And so that's exactly what we see happening with with tele, with phones today. You know, Google Wellbeing, Apple Screen Time, they are using they are doing that. And this is just their first attempt, right? This is just the first generation. They will continue to improve, I guarantee you. They're doing that because they saw thousands of app makers putting these type of products and services in the app stores, and so they do what they always did. They they copied them and they integrated them for free inside the operating system. Uh, it's what happened with uh, the blue light. Right? Remember there was this uproar around how screens emit blue light and that might mm -hmm. be bad for your sleep so very quickly uh you know somebody some enterprising entrepreneur put put a, an app in the app store that helped limit blue light on your on your iphone then a little while later apple copied that feature and made it available to everyone for free right and that's exactly yeah. what 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 we will continue to see so what we're really going to see here is that tech fixes the last generation of of the bad aspects of technology and this is what we have always done we have adapted our behavior and we have adopted new technologies to fix the last generation of technology but that can only happen that's not guaranteed that can only happen if we shed this cynical view of technology and realize that to improve the human condition to improve our standard of living to improve the environment to improve our well-being we need to increase uh and our commitment to technological innovation awesome. i like it so that's that was uh, your best case and most likely case. I'm curious, Madam, or then, you know, let's move into the likely case for you and see. Most likely scenario. Yeah, I, I want to build on a point that Nir made earlier, which is that the younger generations are getting better at managing their attention, especially in the online world and all the information flying around there. So my most likely case is that each new generation does become better at managing their attention, at staying focused, at being able to tell what information is suspicious and what information is trustworthy. And mm -hmm. I do think a lot of, especially older generations, are going to fall into the distraction trap, unfortunately. I think that it will be difficult for some people who grew up in an age where you were expecting to have the same job at the same company your whole life, whether it's a truck driver, a retail worker, or something else, it will be difficult for them to sort of reinvent themselves. And I think it's related to, you know, the, the issue of distraction is kind of related to the opioid e epidemic and, you know, gun suicides and, and things of that nature. So there's definitely going to be a difficult period of transition, and it's going to be the most difficult for the older generations. But I do feel like with all the trends that are going on with Apple and just the demand for this type of technology and smarter generation, younger generations being smarter and more savvy, I do mm -hmm. think I do feel optimistic on this topic, you know, more so than some of the other topics we've discussed on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm pretty optimistic, like both of you guys. Um, 
one of the things that I think will be a wild card is like how how the newer, more invasive technologies affect us. So how does VR affect us? How does augmented reality affect us? And maybe like you said, Nir, maybe it's just if you like the Douglas Adams quote, if if kids grow up and they're below 15 when these things are introduced, they're going to be totally fine. They're going to learn how to, you know, adapt to this new technology just fine. But maybe by the time really immersive VR comes around, we're going to be over 35 and we're not going to know what to do with it. And then, then our generation is just going to be, you know, totally, totally uh, sucked up in this really cool new technology. Who knows? Like, I, I don't know how that's actually going to affect distraction. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it'll be quite a while before it's good enough to where people are just, you know, moving into their own AI or their own uh, VR worlds. Um, but anyways, yeah, I think that's those kinds of things are the wild cards for me. But I do like the trends that we're seeing. I like the trends of companies working towards getting people to use screens less or at least more intelligently. Yeah. yeah. So any any final thoughts on, on your end, Nir, before we close out the episode? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the... If the- there's one summary for the book, uh, one mantra that I, I, I repeat quite often is that um, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Mm. That you know, one thing that our species can do better than any other creature on the face of the earth is that we can see the future per the theme of this show. Mm. We can see the future with higher fidelity than any other animal. No other animal can predict what's going to happen like we can. And so we can harness that power. You know, if the, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit and you're about to take a puff, you're going to smoke it. Mm-hmm. If the phone is on your nightstand and you're eight inches from your phone and eight inches from your lover, you're going to pick up that phone first thing in the morning. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that we're powerless. This is a problem of impulsiveness. This is a problem of what happens in the moment when we are distracted to do something we didn't intend to do. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought, that by planning ahead, there is no technology that's currently available, who knows what's gonna happen in the future, there's Mm -hmm. no technology, there's no food that is so delicious, there is nothing that we can't overcome by planning ahead. And that's what becoming indistractable is all about, it's by taking these four steps, it's not that hard, it's not rocket science, we just have to do it. And so this is the big question in my mind, is whether people just want to complain about the problem or whether they actually want to take a step to do something about it. And that doesn't mean we can't also, you know, get these companies to change and who knows, you know, maybe there'll, there'll be regulation that's coming down the pipes. But my, my point is, why would we wait, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why would we wait for the geniuses in Washington to do something about it or for the tech <laughs> companies to make their products less engaging? I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So why don't we take steps today to become indistractable, to fix this problem? And I think it is a fixable problem. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Well, for our listeners, you know, definitely would recommend actually reading or listening to Indistractable by Nir Eyal. I have the book right here. And we've really only skimmed the surface of a lot of the tips and advice that Nir gives in the book. So would definitely recommend that. Um, where can people find you, Nir? Where should people go? Yeah, so my website is nearandfar.com. Nir is spelled like my first name, so N-I-R and far.com. 
And if you go to indistractable.com, uh, there you will find all sorts of tools and resources, as well as a complimentary video course, as well as an 80-page workbook we couldn't fit into the manuscript. So that's all there for free as well. Nice. That's all at indistractable.com. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Nir, for joining us on the podcast. And thank you to all of our listeners. This has been the Future of Distraction. And we hope to see you next time. What will inevitably happen? The past, the present, and the future. Hey Futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.